Good morning once again, and uh, I wish there was some sort of certificate I could give to all of you for uh, completing uh, along with me the, the study of Zechariah. It's been, uh, it's been a long time that we have been in this wonderful uh, prophecy, so uh, uh, if you want to give yourselves a hand, you can do that, but uh, jo please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that every uh, page of your word uh, is instructive. Every page of your word points us uh, to you as our creator, our redeemer, the one who gives us life. Every page uh, of your word uh, extols the, the virtue uh, and beauty and majesty and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for uh, the prophecy of Zechariah. At, at times, Father, an overlooked book at the end of uh, the Old Testament, we tend, O oh God, to sort of skip through uh, these men of old, uh, wanting perhaps to get to the Gospels, wanting to get to the, the parts that we believe are more relevant, more understandable uh, to our sense. And yet we know you have included Zechariah in your word because he is instructive in pointing us to the importance of faithfulness, to the importance of hope, and truly, Lord God, to the importance of your holiness, that you are a holy God and that you require a holy people. And in being holy and in requiring a holy people, you have made it possible to be holy, even as you are holy. Uh, this through the completed and finished work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see, Father, in these pages of uh, the prophet Zechariah, a display of your desire and will, uh, both to promote holiness and to, to preserve it within us as we seek to serve you. And so we pray as we come to the end of this book, I would ask, Father, that you would continue to increase our appetite and desire to pursue holiness through faith and trust in Christ, through the diligent study and application of your word through wrestling, Father, with at times very difficult texts that challenge our understanding, that daunt our imagination, that destroy the idols that we have created in our heart uh, by which we falsely worship you and falsely worship the things of this world. We thank you for the faithfulness of men like Zechariah who spoke your word and continue with the help of your spirit to speak boldly. And may we, Lord God, display that same spirit of boldness in, in our time and in our age. We would ask, Lord God, that we would be holy people, that like the repentant tax collector, we would put on display before the world, not as a means of show, but as a means of true humility, that there is a God who can make the vile and the wretched holy, pure, and clean, that there is a God who forgives, that there is a God who restores, that there is a God who reconciles, that there is a God who heals, and that he is real, and that it grieves him to his core when people rebel and reject his offer of grace, mercy, and eternal life through faith in Christ. Father, help us to be people who reflect that same grace, mercy, and compassion, that our holiness would not be a means of boasting, but a vehicle of testimony to your greatness. That we would point people to the God who can do these amazing things, these wonderful things. 
And that in doing that, Lord God, we would not lose hope in the midst of this present darkness. That we would be light and salt, holding out the word of life, encouraging and exhorting and admonishing those who do not yet know your Son to lay hold of him by faith, that you, O Lord God, may hold them forever in the palm of your hand, close, Father, close, never to lose us, never to abandon us, never to forsake us. So, Father, we ask that you would now do this as we hear your word once again from Zechariah. And this we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights in a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And the plague, like this plague, shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps." Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. 
that this shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The, the prophecy of Zechariah begins with a stunning clarity uh, early on. The very first words out of the, the prophet's mouth is the Lord telling the people, encouraging them to return, that he would return to them. The prophecy ends with this a very, very chaotic scene of, of judgment uh, followed by peace and security. All of this, uh, if you remember, is tied into the overall theme of the book, um, which is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Strength for today in, in the hope that God will continue to be with his people as they follow him, that he will be the one who will sustain and protect and lead them um, in the present time. And then the, the, um, the bright hope for tomorrow is the promise of this coming one, this coming king, this Messiah, who will indeed finally once and for all establish God's kingdom over all the earth, be worshipped, so that there will be a peace forever. And Zechariah 14 completes this historical sequence of events uh, that began uh, in Zechariah 9, uh, and included historically in these events that are recorded from 9 uh, moving forward are the, uh, the, the conquests of, of Alexander the Great, uh, to the Maccabean Wars uh, between the Testaments, uh, the majority of the prophecies in uh, chapter 9 were regarding the coming king, which we saw as, uh, in Zechariah 9, the prediction of the, the coming of Jesus to Jerusalem, his uh, subsequent rejection by uh, the people of God, and God's eventual judgment on Jerusalem, which takes place in historical form in 70 AD, but then there is this other event that will follow subsequent to that. Um, included in this are this prophecy, and we saw in chapter 12, about forgiving those who will look upon the one whom they have pierced. Um, we see how this prophecy with regard to the forgiveness, the one being pierced, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that process of forgiveness starts really being implemented with Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And it continues to this very day, the proclamation of the gospel, that all who look to Christ uh, as having died and suffered for our sins will be forgiven. And so in keeping then with the, the forward movement of salvation history, the next great event following the first coming of Christ is the second coming of Christ. And that incorporates a lot of the events that are described here in Zechariah 14. Because at his second coming, at his return, Christ will finally, once and for all, vindicate his people. He will judge the living and the dead. We have said that in the creeds. Uh, and he will finally establish his kingdom, his reign and rule of blessing his peace. His reign and rule now, which takes place in a spiritual sense, in the hearts of those who have come to faith in him. But we are looking forward to the day when his reign will be firmly and fully established over all of creation, so that not only is humanity redeemed, but so also is the very creation that we have despoiled through our, our own sin. 
So if you look at it from that perspective, take that sort of long view, the focus of Zechariah 14 goes well beyond just these wide-ranging principles of how to live in this present time. Uh, at the same time, even though it talks about the, the return of Christ, it, it's not talking about a, a literal thousand-year political reign of Christ, which is centered in the earthly uh, city of Jerusalem. On the contrary, Zechariah 14, uh, much like Revelation 20, uh, does concern the second coming of Christ. At that time, he will bring down the curtain on this present age. Remember, we live in the overlap of the ages. So he'll bring down the curtain on this present age. And the new age that he introduced uh, at his first coming will finally blossom into full bloom. And we will be uh, in his presence forever. And God then will guarantee uh, the forever the purity, the peace, and the prosperity of his church which is represented by the city of Jerusalem. That's a lot to take in, but that's the overview of the book from start to finish. In fact, that's the overview of the Bible from start to finish. The, the key verse to understand uh, what happens in 12 to 21 in Zechariah 14 is verse 11b, where after describing this uh, scene of, of chaos, uh, the Lord, speaking through the prophet, says, Jerusalem shall dwell in security. No longer, he says, will there be a, a ban of utter destruction threatened against the city, but Jerusalem will dwell in security. It will have shalom, it will have peace, it will have wholeness, it will have well-being. Uh, why verse 11? Well, because after his uh, decisive defeat over his enemies, God will finally and fully establish his eternal kingdom. The New Testament equivalent of Zechariah 14.11 is Revelation 22, verse 3. That's where John mentions that the curse of Genesis 3 uh, has been removed forever. No longer, says uh, John the Revelator, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. There'll be no need of sun or moon to give light because the Lord himself, the Lamb, will be the light that will guide and lead and provide sustenance, warmth, comfort, and all of that is necessary for life will come from him. So like Revelation 22.3, Zechariah 14.11 envisions this happening with this new creation, which is part of the hope that is generated from the book. Because the, the people, remember the exiles, have returned to Jerusalem and it's a pile of rubble. The walls are broken down, their houses have been ransacked. And so what can God do with a pile of rubble? What can God do with all of this destruction? Well, the promise is that one day we'll all be restored. It won't simply be built, rebuilt by human hands, but there is a greater, more permanent kingdom that God is bringing about. And he's going to do that because he delights in his glory, he delights in his holiness. Remember last week we said that the, the theme of verses 1 to 11 is that God's holiness guarantees the holiness of his people. He will have a people set apart for himself. He will have that third, that remnant. The big idea of, of 12 to 21 is that same holiness that God instills in his people. God's holiness now guarantees his people will dwell in an eternal security, that he will protect them, he will keep them safe forever. 
that his holiness guarantees the long-term well-being of his people. He guarantees that his people will dwell in a permanent safety, uh, in a permanent comfort, in a permanent protection. So you want to look at it from that way, that the, the, the big idea, the holiness of God guarantees that his people will dwell in holy security. A couple of questions. Or it's, how does that happen? How does God guarantee it? Well, he will judge their enemies. What will be the sign of this security? That he will rule as king over all. And how will we experience this security? It, it, well, we will experience by God sanctifying or making us holy as he is holy. So God's holiness guarantees that his people will dwell in eternal security. He will do that because he will judge their enemies. He will um, be worshipped. He will rule as king over all. And he will then sanctify. He will make holy all things uh, for himself. So let's, let's just break this down. So verses 12 to 15. God guarantees eternal security uh, for his people by judging their enemies. The, uh, when we looked at verses 1 to 11, we saw the attack on Jerusalem from the perspective of those being attacked. When we get to verses 12 to 15, the tables are turned, and now we're getting the perspective of those who are attacking what's happening to them. Verses 12 to 15 describe some awful things that happen to those that are attacking the holy city. Flesh rotting, eyes rotting, tongues falling, which raises the issue. Good question. How do we understand these judgments? Are they literal or are they figurative? And the answer is yes. We understand them literally by taking them figuratively. That the eyes, uh, the, the flesh rots because that is what's being used to attack the holy city. The eyes rot because those are the eyes that gaze with, with lustful and harmful intent upon that city. And the tongue rots because it is with the tongue that we curse and blaspheme those who not only dwell in the city, but the one who built that city, which is God himself. So in a figurative sense, the rotting of the flesh refers to the things that we would use, or the enemies of God would use to sin against him. And so we understand the text literally by taking it figuratively. Uh, and it's also by doing that, we understand the, the character of God and the nature of his judgment. Uh, for example, in, in Deuteronomy 9.3, uh, the, Moses is talking to the, the children of Israel. They're about to enter into the promised land. And, you know, they've been promised that this land is theirs, that God is going to go before them. And Moses is encouraging them. He says, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you, that is the Lord, he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So there's a sense that the battle belongs to the Lord. He is the one who does this. It's not the, it's not the defenders who see to it that the, those who are attacking are destroyed, but it is God himself who is this consuming fire. If some of you are old enough to remember the scene at the end of the first Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, right, that's probably the image that comes to mind when you see this, because when soon they open up the ark, right, and, and Indiana tells, look away, look away, right? And then, of course, the, 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 all these weird things happen, and then the, the, the guys melt, right? Literally, figuratively, yes. 
all to say, be on the right side on the day of judgment. Right? Be on the right side. Be on, uh, on the side of those that are in the city who are dwelling under the smile and protection of the most holy God. Now, if we had time, I'd walk through all of those judgments, but <clears throat> suffice it to say, uh, verses 12 to 15 simply describe the inescapable universal judgment of God, which he will bring upon every individual and every nation. No one who opposes God, no one who has rejected his authority, no one who has despised his gospel will escape his final judgment. And it's not as if at the final judgment, those who are being judged will, will sort of go, oh no, I should have. It's like, no, even in being judged, even in being sentenced to this most dreadful uh, vengeance, they will still, in a sense, keep on cursing God. In a sense, the hell is not filled with people who are regretting never having chosen God. It is filled with people who are continually angry at him, despite the fact that it is a rejection of him that has put them where they are. And so it is a terrifying thing, says the writer of Hebrews, to fall into the hands of the living God. One commentator writes that the gruesome judgments inflicted on the nations are intended to express the idea of their utter destruction. We don't like talking about the judgment of God because we have this idea, certainly true, that God is loving and caring and kind. But there is a side, that's one side of his holiness. The other side of his holiness is his wrath, is his judgment. Many of us, certainly I put myself in this category, we came to faith in Christ primarily at the start because we didn't want to go to hell. Because we didn't want to experience his wrath. And we came to understand that he poured out the fullness of his wrath, that the rotting of the flesh, the rotting of the eyes, the rotting of the tongue, that happened to Christ on the cross. For us. And so, yes, God is loving. God is merciful. God is kind. And praise Him for it. But He is also just and holy. And His holiness demands punishment for those who spurn His grace and turn their back on His offer of salvation. So these judgments that we see are bad news for the enemies of God, but they are consolation and comfort for God's people. Because it means that if vengeance truly does belong to the Lord, if justice truly belongs to Him, then our responsibility is not that. Our responsibility is to pray for those who persecute, pray for those who blaspheme, pray for those who oppose. Because we know from God's Word the fate that awaits those who reject Him. And so our prayer for them is that God would open their eyes to see the foolishness and the folly and the end thereof of their rebellion. So we have in this text not only this promise of judgment, but an inspiration, if you will, to pray for our enemies. That's why Jesus can say that in the Sermon on the Mount. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, he says, because... Be knowing what awaits them and what I have endured for your salvation, you are now liberated to love your neighbor as you love God. And you leave justice and vengeance up to him in the ultimate sense. Doesn't mean you don't fight for justice. Doesn't mean you don't fight for the oppressed. Doesn't mean you don't fight for fairness and all of that in this life. But in the ultimate sense, judgment 
belongs to God. It's what the point of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is about. We want to avoid being like the Pharisee. We want to avoid that kind of self-righteousness. I go to church. I read my Bible. I do devotions with my family. I tithe. I contribute to every charitable cause. See how good I am, O God. We are like or supposed to be more like the tax collector than the Pharisee. Because that's the thing that draws people to the gospel, not the other thing. Not our self-righteousness, because we have none. So we pray for our enemies. Because someone prayed for us when we were enemies from God. Someone interceded on our behalf that we would come to see who God is, that His Spirit would open our heart, that we would turn in faith to Christ. Where would we be had there not been that prayer? So you can, you can curse or you can sort of cast off those that have a particular letter after their name when they get on TV because they don't think the way you do politically or spiritually. Don't do that. Weep for them for their blindness and pray for them that God would open their eyes and change their heart. That's the way you win people over to Christ. Yep, call evil, evil. Call what is bad, what is bad. But do so with the intent of changing the heart, not destroying the opponent. That's how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. He was pointed. He was on the mark. He was justifiably angry but he always brought it back to the offer of salvation. He always brought it back to the point of the heart being changed and transformed. One more thing then before moving on with regard to blessing those who curse us and all of that. Newer translations, you may have it in yours, newer translations of the ESV the translation that I use, I think most of us use here, um, has a very curious uh, translation of verse 14, where it says, even Judah will fight against Jerusalem. Um, the, the copy of the, the ESV I have is an older one. I think it was released like in 2002 or 2003. Um, the NIV has this translation, the NA, uh, New America Standard. Uh, the, the better translation is, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the significance is this that rather than Judah fighting against the holy city, Judah actually comes alongside and fights with Jerusalem against the enemies. What's, what's going on there? The idea is that Judah, you know, Jerusalem is a city. Judah would be out in the sticks, in the surrounding countryside. Here, there is a sense of unity, that when the church is under attack, the saints rally in defense. That united we stand. Divided we fall. So when push comes to shove, there is this, again, remember, chapter 11 ends with this very dismal scene. The staffs being broken, the possibility of Judah and Israel being reunited is dashed. Here we see at the end in Zechariah 14, God is going to see to it that the nation will be united in its stance against those who attack. So, and on top of that, all of the wealth of the nations that they had hoarded uh, to use against the holy city will in fact be turned over to the inhabitants. They will become spoils, the spoils of, of war. We see that in, in Revelation for sure. So how does God guarantee uh, the security of his people? <clears throat> he will judge their enemies. The next thing, after he does this, 
God will then rule as king over all. Uh, in verses 16 uh, through 19, uh, we sense that everyone who survives all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king and then so forth and so on from that point on. Uh, sometimes the, the best way uh, to interpret the Bible is to let the Bible interpret itself. We have heard this before, this sense of, of the nations that have, would gather against God's people. Remember, this is why we pray for them, coming now to worship God. Um, in Zechariah 2, in Zechariah's third vision, verses 10 and 11, the prophet says this, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Isaiah makes a similar prophecy in Isaiah 12, that the nations that had been in opposition to Judah and Israel would be won over and converted to the worship of the one true God. And we have a picture of this, certainly, in the New Testament. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and he talks about the church being comprised of neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for all, he says, are one in Christ Jesus, and of all are Christ's, then all are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's Galatians 3, 28 and 29. So here you have in Zechariah, both in chapter 2 and in verse 14, also back in Isaiah, this promise that there will be a remnant of the nations that turned against Jerusalem that God will, will call out of that group a people for himself that he can attach and join to his own people. So that in the same way God spares a third, a remnant at the, in uh, chapter 13, he will do the same thing for the nations who would attack his people. That he will see to it that they will worship him as the one true God. And then they will come and they will worship him, he says, at this festival, this feast of booths. What's going on there? Why And why draw attention to the Feast of Booths? Why not come and worship on the Day of Atonement? Why not come and worship at the Passover? It has to do with what the Feast of Booths represents. If you go back and you read uh, earlier in the Old Testament, you will see that um, in Leviticus, um, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles um, or the Feast of Shelters is one of three annual festivals held in Israel that required people to come into Jerusalem. The first one was Passover. The second one was uh, Pentecost. And then the third one was the Feast of Booths. It's a, it's a harvest festival. But more importantly, it celebrates the fact and remembers the fact that during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness, they lived in shelters. And this festival remembers the fact that even though they lived in shelters, God provided for them. That the, he gave them the pillar of cloud by day so that the sun would not beat down on them and cause them to thirst or have their skin burn or suffer harm. There was a pillar of fire by night to, to warm them and to guide them. But they lived in shelters. 
And during that wandering, despite their disobedience, God also then brought them into the promised land until, until they would dwell in permanent dwellings, which God says you didn't build and you'll reap from vineyards you didn't plant because that's how much I care about providing for you. And so these, uh, these booths, this Feast of Booths, also was celebrated five days after the Day of Atonement and was celebrated for seven days. It's, it's interesting that the Feast of Booths, uh, these shelters that they would build, um, the feast itself looks forward and backward. It looks backward, as they just said, to the time that God took care of Israel and provided for them. It also looks forward to the time when even the permanent dwellings that they live in will vanish and God will fully and once and for all dwell with his people. Well, communion for us, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, does a similar thing. We look backward to the cross and then we look forward the way that Paul says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we, we, we celebrate the fact of our salvation while looking forward to the day of our ultimate salvation when Christ will return. That's what the Feast of Booths does. So you have in this a promise, if you will, not only of God bringing the nations into his people, but then this united group, both Gentile and natural-born Jews, will dwell together in the presence of God forever. So you here you are, if you're your average run-of-the-mill exile that's returned to Jerusalem in that day, and you see your enemies gathered around you, here's a prophecy from Zechariah that says, one day, that fellow that's aiming a bow at you will sit at your table and you will feed him and you will be friends with him and he will welcome you into his house and show you hospitality. Why? Because the Lord has shown you the greatest hospitality by welcoming you into his kingdom. By giving to you from his vineyard, from giving to you of his own flesh, by giving to you of his own holiness so that you can go out and be holy toward others. So there's this marvelous sense in which God guarantees the security and holiness of his people by ensuring that he will be rule, that he will be worshipped and rule over all. One commentator says that the feast will be kept by the Gentiles who have come to believe in the living God, to thank the Lord for his grace, that he has brought them out of the wanderings of this life into the blessedness of his kingdom of peace. Is this not what Peter talks about in his letter? That he has brought us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And he's writing not only to Jews who have been dispersed because of persecution, but he's writing to Gentiles who themselves have been welcomed in. Peter himself being the one who first went to Cornelius, the Gentile, the Roman centurion, preached to him the gospel, saw the Holy Spirit fall upon his family and said, how can we keep such as these outside the kingdom of God? Because God has brought them in. So there's just this marvelous picture. We look around, we, I, I know you pay attention, you read the news, you, you watch things, you read things, and it, it looks pretty dismal at times. Language is being manipulated to say things it was never meant to say. Politicians using position and power and influence in ways that are not honoring of God or even of others. They're just accumulating power for themselves. We see the economy going one way and those who are in charge acting as if things are fine. As if they sort of live in this multiverse. Not just a parallel universe, but a multiverse in which everything is rosy. And we think, wait a minute, am I the only one who seems to see this doesn't make any sense? 
Zechariah says, don't worry if it doesn't make any sense. Because the one who rules over all will see too that on one day it will make sense. So your role, your responsibility is be faithful to him. Politicians will do what politicians will do. What will you do? How will you handle the truth? How will you speak the truth? How will you behave according to the truth? How will you demonstrate your love for God by loving your neighbor? Doesn't mean you don't pray for those leaders in government. Doesn't mean you, pray, you don't pray for a society. We do. But we do so with the understanding that once we've done that, our sphere of influence is very small, but very important. So Zechariah is just pointing us in that direction of knowing that God will one day be worshipped. That's the hope that we have. It's why he mentions Egypt as well. <clears throat> I mean, there was probably no greater enemy outside of Babylon to the, Isra- to the Israelite nation than Egypt. Remember, they were slaves to them for 400, over 400 years. And God says, if, if, if you don't come to worship me, uh, I'm going to send drought. I'm going to make sure that your crops uh, don't fail. That was a curse that was promised uh, in Deuteronomy. Well, drought means nothing to Egypt because they got all, most of their water from the Nile. So God says, you're, Egypt, you're not going to escape because you're going to get plagues too. And that is a, an igniter of memory amongst the Egyptians. It was ten plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians to break Pharaoh of his stubbornness to let Israel go. And the purpose of that is to say, look, there's these tremendous blessings I will give to you. These tremendous blessings that are in store. And among those, we see at the end of the chapter, verses 20 and 21. On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So anything that is common in the day of the Lord will become holy, separate, separated for a holy purpose, separated for a holy use. Even horses, horses that were used for battle, horses that were used to pull chariots, Horses that were used to carry riders into battle. These same horses will now be used to carry wagons laden with grain offering and pilgrims into the holy city. All so that God could be worshipped. It's a a scene that is reminiscent not only of what happens at the end of Isaiah 66, but also in Revelation 19. John writes of Jesus in that verse, on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the security means that God will sanctify all things. He will make holy all things for his worship, for his glory, that we may participate in that. And all of that through this restored Jerusalem. And that raises the the question, and I've I've addressed this in in an earlier sermon, um, how to interpret Jerusalem. And uh, if you remember, uh, you can go back and read the, uh, listen to the archives. Zechariah 2, I indicated that according to, since we, we look at this through the lens of, of Reformed theology, um, Jerusalem and Israel are a forerunner of the church, uh, where the church inherits 
the promises made to national Israel. And in that sermon, I cited, um, I quoted from a, a blog post by a man named R. Scott Clark, R. Scott Clark, who teaches at Westminster um, in California. He says, Reformed theology does not contrast Israel with the church. For Reformed theology, the church has always been the Israel of God, and the Israel of God has always been the church. Reformed covenant theology distinguishes the old and new covenants. It recognizes that the church was temporarily conveyed through a representative national people, but the church has existed since Adam, Noah, Abraham, and it existed under Moses and David, and it exists under Christ. Despite the nullification of the national covenant by the obedience, death, and resurrection of Christ, the New Testament church has not replaced the Jews. Paul says that God grafted the Gentiles into the people of God. And grafting is not replacement, it is addition. Right? The expansion of the kingdom by addition. It has been widely held by Reformed theologians that, like what Paul says in Romans, there will be a great conversion of Jews. Some will call this anti-Semitism, but it is not anti-Semitism, it is Christianity. So the overall message of these last two verses is that everything in this new Jerusalem, everything that is in God's church, if you will, is holy. And this holiness will spread outward. Right? Remember the, the, that river that flows out from the east to the west? This river of holiness that comes from God, just flows out through his people, spreading the word of truth, the, the water of life, the river of life, proclaiming the, the glory of Christ, to sanctify Judah and Samaria and the other most parts of the earth, all so that they will worship God. Holiness, why holiness? Because it's the main attribute of God in the Old Testament. A holy God must have a holy people. It's what he tells Moses in Leviticus. I am holy, therefore you must be holy. When Isaiah goes into the temple after the death of King Uzziah, and he has his marvelous vision, where the, the, the very foundations of the temple are shaken by the presence of God, and God's presence is so immense, he doesn't even see God in entirety, he just sees the train of his robe. And then he hears the seraphim calling to one another. Isaiah is just a spectator at this point. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so this, that thrice proclamation of God's holiness dominates not only the rest of Isaiah's ministry, but it dominates all of Zechariah. Because God will have a holy people. He has a holy people, and he will establish a holy people forever. This will be, if you will, a, a new Garden of Eden, it would be paradise restored. And this too is a fulfillment of a vision that Isaiah had earlier in the prophecy. One of my, it's one of my favorite visions in his book. In chapter 2, verse 5, God says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited as a village without walls. It's going to keep growing, keep expanding, keep enlarging because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And here's the part I love. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, and I will be the glory in her midst. That wall of fire spreads, and it does two things. It consumes the enemies of God, 
at the same time transforms them into a holy people. Because the only way you enter into that holy city is by passing through that wall of fire. But that presents us with a problem, right? We're not holy. So how can a holy people, an unholy people, approach a holy God and dwell in a holy city? Unless, of course, there is one who has passed through that wall of fire, suffered the wrath of God's judgment, died, and came back. Because the wall of fire that is mentioned in Zechariah 2 is reminiscent of the flaming sword guarding the entrance of the tree of life in Genesis. And that the only way to gain access to that tree of life is to go under the sword of God's judgment. The only way to pass through that is to trust in the one who has gone under the sword, who has passed through the fire of his judgment. You know, and that, of course, is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that he, and it was prophesied of him by John the Baptist, that he would come and he would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Why those two things? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our heart to the realization that we are unholy. And he is the one that gives us the courage to pass through the fire of God's consuming grace that we might, through trust in Christ, be made holy. So Zechariah is telling his people, there is a day coming when all that is unholy, including us, will be holy. Two of my favorite passages, when I, when I wonder about God's love and his desire for fellowship with his people, are from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In, uh, in the 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, the Corinthians had a very high opinion of themselves. And Paul, part of the reason why he wrote the letter is to sort of bring them down to earth with understanding who they are in Christ and who Jesus is. So he reminds them in verse 26 of chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here God takes these very humble folk, like you and me, not wise, not influential, not powerful, and he transforms them into wise and strong and influential through Christ. But there's an even better part, an even more pointed thing that Paul talks about in terms of how God makes an unholy people holy. Because he writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, looking in verse 9. He says, Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And just when at that point we're going, yes, Paul, you go on, you tell them, you drop the hammer on all of those sinners. Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That line, and such were some of you, but. (laughs) I don't know with what heart or mind or attitude you approach Sunday worship or what heart or mind or attitude you approach prayer or even God's word. But if it is with any sense of unworthiness, if it is with any sense of uncleanness, if it is of any sense of unholiness, let these words from the Apostle Paul be encouragement to you that if you have been washed, if you have been sanctified, if you have been justified, all of that other stuff that you were is in the past and be now who you are in Christ. That's the message of Zechariah to his nation, to his generation. That was the past. Now is now. And we have a glorious future if we but continue our trust in God and in His holiness and in His righteousness and in His beauty and in His glory and in His grace. I ended uh, last week's sermon with a quote from David Wells' book, and I think it's appropriate to end this sermon with the same quote with regard to God's holiness. Wells says, God's holiness is a reality toward which we are all moving. For in the end, God's holiness will prove to be the final line of resistance to all that is wrong, all that is evil in the world. The day is coming when truth will be placed forever on the throne and error forever on the scaffold. That's strength for today. That is bright hope for tomorrow. That is the hope and the promise and the assurance that is given to us from a mighty, gracious, holy God. You think about that.